And now, coming to you from the Gershwin Room, high atop the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Stroud and Gary K. Wolf with very special guest, New York Times best-selling writer Jeff Vandermeer on the Coot Street Podcast! Welcome, Jeff, if you can put up with that and still stay on the podcast. <laughs> I just don't know if I can match it, but thank you for having me. <laughs> it's a delight. It's been a long time coming. Yeah, we've been glad to have you on the podcast for a long time, and, and now you have a... a I guess I guess it's a trilogy of books. It's, uh, it's that made the front trilogy, page of yeah. New York Times just by just by being published. Yes, yes. Uh, the, uh, the 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 uh, the the phenomenon of having three books out in a row, which uh, FS is not f- very familiar to FSG. Um, they have a much more languorous kind of publishing schedule usually, uh, and I think that's maybe what really stood out uh, for the New York Times: this idea of binge reading, although. I think it was kind of uh, funny because uh, they took it in the wrong direction. There was this ripple effect where there were all these other articles about it. And it, they seem to be inferring that somehow you can, if you binge reading is about skimming. <laughs> and to me, it's about immersion. I sure hope it's about immersion because <laughs> otherwise that's kind of a problem. But uh, but yeah. I, I, I thought what they were implying in that article some time ago was that um, – with with TV series like I don't know Orange is the New Black with yeah. with binge yeah. series being released all at once, why can't yeah. publishing do the same thing? Yeah, no, absolutely. And um, as as I think uh, Jonathan's pointed out, uh, it's something that has been done, you know, in 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 genre quite a bit. Um, and someone else I think pointed out in another article that even serialization, you know, of novels back in the day, uh, like Dickens and whatnot, kind of established kind of the same pattern in a way. So. True. How has it been though for you? Because it's it's quite a, a different way I would imagine, I, and I'm literally just guessing, but I imagine to write and publish because there's been a you know, usually there's been a reasonable well no, reasonable is the wrong word there's been a fair gap between you know getting novels out uh, and and focusing on all of the many other things that you do. So right, right. how has it been to sort of sit down and someone say, well, please give us three novels. That's a great idea. Please write them back to back. And while you're in the middle of writing this one, could you copy edit that one, talk about this one, plan the promo for that one? <laughs> it, I mean, it must have been fairly relaxing stuff. Yeah. It's, well, I mean, think of it Think of it this way, first of all. When I, when I wrote Annihilation, um, I had bronchitis, and all I did is I – I would wake up, I would write for like three hours, I would fall asleep, and then I, I wouldn't wake up until the next day, and then I would write again. <laughs> and at the end of this period, I had something I thought was a novel, but it also could have been something aimless about four women wandering through the wilderness <laughs> uh-huh. in, in, a, in, a, in a landscape that just happens to resemble the hiking trail that I do. And so I handed it to my wife, Anne, and I said, is this is this something? <laughs> and and luckily, I was, I was sitting there while she was reading it, and, and she was having the right reactions in the right places, and I knew that the pacing was working. And, and she said, yes, Jeff, you do indeed have a novel. So first of all, there was the question of whether you know, th- this was something that 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 I was even gonna was even gonna see publication. Then when uh, FSG bought it and the film rights were taken and everything, then yes, you have this this thing where where there are two more books because halfway through Annihilation, I I kind of had the structure in my head for how it was going to play out. At one point, it was actually uh, going to be four books, so it's kind of a collapsed quartet. I didn't actually write mean to write a trilogy, but it kept collapsing on itself, and so. Um, and, and, and but but then then I had this weird thing where I had actually more hours to work on the second and third book than I'd ever had consecutively before, mm. but less time if that makes any sense. So, for example, Shriek or Finch, mm. you know, I think the same number of man hours went into them, mm. uh, but over a longer period of time. 
And uh-huh. so the biggest problem wasn't finding writing time, it was finding the distance from the drafts. And so I played all kinds of tricks of perspective, uh, mm-hmm. including just moving around Tallahassee to different locations to write, um, <laughs> changing fonts, um, having <laughs> Anne read stuff to me, um, you know, pretending I wasn't the author of it, you know, all these things to, to just to, to emulate, simulate the, the, the same thing I would have gotten if I'd been able to put it in a drawer and not look at it for a while. Um, and then just method acting. Like I used that kind of quickness uh, for the second book uh, in in the context of the main character becoming more and more uh, concerned about his position uh, within this secret agency, the Southern Reach. And so suddenly my anxiety was coming out through the character. And so, um, so yes, yeah, so, so there was that. And then there was, like you, you mentioned, Jonathan, since you, you, you're talking about the publication schedule, uh, the the weirdness of working on acceptance, the last book, and looking at the dev edit and the copy edits for authority <laughs> while I'm working on that book and seeing the cover design. And, and thankfully, the cover design didn't interfere. But sometimes, because I'm fairly visual, I'll see a cover while I'm still working on something, and it can really mess me up. Um, and, and and so... Uh, <laughs> So uh, you know there were there were some times when when there were some fraught fraught issues like the first cover that that FSG uh, put out uh, gave me was like a chia pet boar, but it looked mm-hmm. like a cover for like a Southeast Asian novel like an Apocalypse Now or something, mm-hmm. and so I was really having a difficulty with that reconciling that image with what I was working on in, in the in the next two novels, and so thankfully they they came up with this other really amazing design but. Um, but yeah, so there was that issue of finding distance, of, of working on things you don't normally work on at the same time. And the only thing that, that really also helped, besides having Anne there in process to mm-hmm. bounce things off of, she's the only person I can talk about a novel while I'm working on it. I don't get writer's block if, if I've talked about it out loud. <laughs> and so I could, I could go to her with a scene and say, look, these characters, I know that this is not really right. Like, they're not something has not come alive here, you know, and then she'd say, well, what's the backstory of this character, you know, what, blah, 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 and suddenly we, we would work that out together. Um, so that helped a lot. And then also my editor at FSG, Sean McDonald, just basically assured me that I would have carte blanche to make uh, even major changes all the way through the very end of the copy editing process if I wanted to. And so but at the end of the day, I actually did have as much time as I would have had if I had just been been working on a normal schedule. Just instead of taking three years between books, you had three months. Right. But then also, guys, if you could imagine this, living like a hermit for like two years, yep. being really happy when when your car has a flat tire in your driveway, because that means you can't even leave the house. You have to work on the book. Um, and then going out on the road almost continuously since February. <laughs> <laughs> so ready and, to be and, home. And not being a hermit and learning to talk to people again. <laughs> So, so, so yeah, the, title been... your, the, the title of your third volume, Acceptance, sort of describes your own state of mind when you it got It does indeed, Gary. <laughs> it does. I was reflecting upon that as I was finishing the last parts of the last yeah, draft. Right. I've got to say, though, I mean, when they talk about this being an immersive publishing schedule, at least, I mean, these seem to me to be the most stripped back and... Um, spare books that you've written they really seem like a somewhat different style of book much more concise that i mean they talk about again immersive reading for what are three approximately roughly 200 page novels this is not sprawling diversive you know uh, the diverse kind of stuff was it really different to write in that way 
Well, it, in some ways, it comes down, comes back to the landscape of the novels. For one thing, I could relax into writing them because I'm writing from firsthand experiences of places I know. There's actually not a single description of a place in any of the novels that isn't something I haven't seen firsthand in some way, even if it's transformed. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, not the really weird, fantastical elements, mm. but 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 the other stuff. And so um, there's not that kind of obligation that you have where you have to very you have to build up something you know, like I didn't like for the Ambergris novels I, mm. I basically read 20 or 30 books on Byzantine history and and all these firsthand accounts that when I could get my hands on them and 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 all of this other research and so they were in a way historical novels too and mm. that's a different kind of burden than writing about a place that finally feels like home you know i mean for the longest time because we traveled so much when i was a kid i didn't have a sense of place and then we I moved you know to florida i began hiking in north florida here and and that really made a huge difference you know i really feel a part of this landscape and and there's that and then there's also the, the fact that that i'm no longer really that interested in um experimentation that's visible mm-hmm. um i really i don't have any problem with mannered or self-conscious prose i mean i, I read a lot of it but but I've already kind of done that, and so now I'm much more interested in what I would call kind of invisible effects. So there's some experimentation going on below the surface, but it doesn't it doesn't have to impinge on the reading experience, if that makes any sense. Sure, it does. Um, yeah. So that's probably what you're what you're sensing there as well, and um, so it's just kind of a gradual progression. And it's not that I disown the other books or or think that they're bad. It's just a different a different approach, and and one that I'm kind of enjoying. Did you find when you got to the end of Finch that you wanted to take a different approach? Yeah, and Finch was kind of the tipping point because Finch was a little more direct anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and in addition to it being the end of the Ambergris cycle, I had pretty much said on a writerly level everything I'd wanted to say in terms of certain approaches to fiction. Um, and then that's also why there was a wide gap between Finch in 2009 and now these books because... You know, it's it's quite a thing to to live in a world for th- almost twenty years. Sure. Uh, and and then you kind of are at a loss. You know, <laughs> you're kind of like you you've you've kind of gone through something and you don't um, you don't even necessarily know what to do next. So I I started on three other novels, and they're still novels that uh, I believe in strongly, but but they weren't the thing I was really searching for at the time. And then of course we did the weird anthology, and that kind of destroyed our lives for like. 18 months to two years so <laughs> so that, that that happened as well but yeah so there was this kind of interregnum where i was searching for what was the next thing and and suddenly it it was well it's the landscape that i'm familiar with since between finch and annihilation it struck me that you invested a lot of time and effort in uh researching and understanding the field more deeply in some ways and in explaining it to others and some of the mechanisms around it. And I, I, what I'm referring to are doing things like uh, Wonder Book, doing things like The Time Traveler's Almanac, these things which must have re- required you to immerse yourself, first of all, a great deal in a lot of other fiction, and then also in trying to understand mechanisms of it to, to describe it to others. And I wonder if that's kind of a journey that influences where you get to now when you're trying to, well, maybe not deliberately trying but what strikes me is trying to strip back what uh what you're doing in prose and present it in a different way to a readership yeah no absolutely and i think the weird was really uh 
an amazing immersive experience um, because you it almost it, it almost affects you on a subconscious level to read so much weird fiction back to back, and um, and also to see what what is truly original and what is more or less a little bit more pastiche, even though it, it may not be pastiche, but but it was just interesting to see like and without naming names, sure. see something from the twenties or thirties that was the source material for something that you realize that somebody in the eighties was really writing fan fiction. <laughs> um, you know you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And 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 just because the writer from the twenties or thirties was obscure or mostly published in another language, you know, but you could see the definite but there was then just this kind of very subconscious immersion in it and and it made me it it kind of um stripped away a certain kind of ambition. I don't know if that makes any sense, but it it stripped something away and and it wasn't that you know it was just something it, it just made me more aware of of certain things and it made me less concerned about some of the things I'd been concerned about, perhaps, mm-hmm. uh, and 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 so again, it was this kind of process of relaxing into something, um, and uh, and being less interested in in self conscious experiments. So well, it's a generous definition of. Um, I'm sorry, no, no, John. Please go ahead, Jerry. Oh, oh yeah, I was going to say. That anthology, which I've not read all of, I have to admit, it's, yeah. I have picked it well, up. It's... And that's, <laughs> um, it's impressive enough. But it's a it's it's a generous uh, definition of a field which you've probably done as much to define as a field as anyone else, and that is the weird as something other than what we traditionally thought of as horror or fantasy. Uh, I, I remember having a conversation with Ellen Datlow at uh, yeah. I guess it was Worldkind in San Antonio, and she has very clear ideas in mind yeah. as to the differences between dark fantasy and horror and weird fiction and fantasy fiction. And she actually articulated them very well, but I can't try to re-articulate them here. Right, right. And there, there are all kinds of echoes uh, in that book, which I've seen in your fiction as well, of kinds of novels that we don't know what to do with. We can't really call them horror novels. Uh, they're sometimes not published as fantasy novels. Um, there's some of the ones you've published, uh, uh, because we should talk about your role as a publisher, the kind of stuff that Karen Tidbeck writes, for example. Yeah, um, yeah. It, it certainly is easy to describe that as weird, but it's not easy to describe that in terms of the other categories we've inherited. No, it's it's true, and um, I think it, it, it's a, a, obscenely or maybe blasphemy, blasphemously simple thing, but one guiding light beyond you know all the other things that we brought into that book was, is this an encounter with the unknown that does not bring baggage with it? or does not bring the kind of culture creatures that Shama talks about in his book, Landscape and Memory, which is to mm-hmm. say, as soon as you're talking about, say, a vampire, that brings all of these archetypes and all of the, the subtext with it. Um, and so by our definition, and this would, again, not be like S.T. Joshi's definition, for example, certain things cannot be weird because they're already, in a way, commodified. Um and that, of course, changes. It changes over time. It even mm-hmm. changes in the book. We have one story by Ramsey Campbell where it turns out that the thing, more or less, or the, the unknown thing that they're grappling with is a vampire. But we left it in because it's the strange effect of if you read the weird and you come upon that story, you don't expect it to be a vampire. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so mm-hmm. it kind of recharges the archetype as something that's truly unknown. 
and dangerous. Um, but I do admit it's kind of a shifting atmosphere. And, and, and the thing of it with that book is that, 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 that we, we came to parts or frontiers where we had to decide, is this something that's actually more surreal than it is weird? <laughs> Which is another very ambiguous border. Right. Um, and, and, and our decision was, we may never get a chance to do an anthology of this magnitude again. We would rather have the additional, the occasional thing that doesn't quite fit the parameters that may cause some discussion as to whether this is actually weird or not, mm. and have that thing in there than not, knowing that we may never have a, a book this big again. So it's worth starting a discussion because I think, and I think any good anthologist, Jonathan, who's I think also a good anthologist, I think any good anthologist wants to start discussions rather than to shut them down. Um, and and the, the only other really large-scale anthologies uh, that I could compare it to would, would have been uh, David Hartwell's Dark Descent many years yes. ago, and then, yes. and then Peter Straub's American Fantastic Tales, which was limited to American. And I know from, uh, from talking to Peter that he clearly wanted to do exactly that sort of thing. He wanted to include stories that would make some people sit up and say, this, what, this doesn't fit any definition of fantastic that I've ever seen before. Um, right, and, and, and I think that, um, and that's that 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 the the leeway along that spectrum of having different anthologies that take a slightly different approach to it is what mm -hmm. makes 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 it so rich. Like the Hartwell anthology is the perfect companion, or the weird is the perfect companion to the Hartwell, whatever way you want to see it, mm -hmm. because he is so, in a good way, strict. If that makes any sense. Mm. Yes. about his de definitions. And so that's why that anthology series is so great. Then you look at something like the Blackwater series by Alberto Manguel, and, and it's all over the place. It's, it's, yeah. it's wonderful, but it's more like a treasury. Um, and so we wanted to be somewhere in between the, those two things, um, in part because then all of those anthologies are speaking to one another as well, and they're not, we're not replicating the same thing. Do you think it's possible? To, to, sorry, what were you saying, Gary? Go ahead. Uh, no, you, your, your turn, Jonathan. I was going to say, do you think it's possible to come through the extent of reading and research you must have done? Because if you're going to put, you know, a hundred odd stories in a book, you yeah. must have read thousands of them to, to do it, we along did. with a lot of stuff about the weird and spend hours and hours debating and thinking about it. Can you come through that? Do you think and not be changed in how you want to write and how you want to approach fantastical fiction at all? No, no, I don't. I don't think you can. And and um, and the process for another writer would be, wouldn't be just to read the weird. It would be to do go on that same journey, if that makes any sense. Mm. Um, and basically, whether you actually are doing an anthology or not, create it in your head. Um, but um, but yeah, no, it, it's uh, it's 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 also it's also really rewarding because you realize just how rich. Mm. Rich the field is from all different directions. The um, the the one regret we have with that anthology is that we reached a point where we basically ran out of money um, yeah. towards the end um, for permissions. I mean, it was an excruciating permission process. I mean, if you can imagine, well, I mean, you probably had to do I this. Can. I have to describe the internet to monks on an island to get permissions for a translation. You know, I mean, it, things like that. You know, it's like um, <laughs> it, it's it, you know how ridiculous it can get and. Um, and, and so at a certain point, you know, there were certain things we wanted to do that we couldn't do. Like, for example, there are an amazing number of South uh, Latin American uh, women writers who 
write primarily or write some fantastical fiction and usually dark fantastical fiction who have only really appeared, begun to appear in scattered translations sometimes in literary journals in the last 10 years, but have been published in, in Latin America for like the last 30 years. And so there are areas and frontiers like that that we're, we're kind of turning our attention to now that are are not part of the discussion in the weird, not part of the conversation. And, 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 and I think something... You know, just, 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 just the kinds of things that we want to focus on going forward are, are those kinds of things where you kind of repatriate other parts of the fantastic with itself. Um, I wish, I wish I knew Spanish. I wish I knew other languages, but the only way I know how to do this repatriation is through English. So yeah, and you've done a great deal with bringing Finnish writers into this dialogue <laughs> as well. Uh, and um, and and one of the things that I think this does is it it, it deepens the pool because there is what. Oh, let me see what, what what John Clute calls the cauldron of story, and Neil Gaiman has yeah. a another metaphor for it, but it's a, it's another cauldron metaphor. Uh, and the more there is in there, the more is it seems to me the more is, there is for writers to draw on. That there's a kind of elusiveness that um, that that creates echoes. When I was reading uh, Annihilation, I'll give you an example and see if see if mm-hmm. see if you can you can completely hate me for this, but. I was thinking of weird things along the way, Um, none of them being traditional fantasies, but I was thinking of other things that I I thought that um, there's a tradition, as you know, of stories of going into forbidden areas. Uh, Yes. There's things like from Edgar Rice Burroughs Beyond 30 to Ballard's Hello America. Um, And but there was also this kind of nature journey, which reminded me of Johanna Senesalo's Bird Brain. Because mm-hmm, some of mm-hmm. these, some of the same affect was there. Some of the landscape. There was a novel, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm just throwing these out because uh, yeah. uh, because they came to mind. There was a novel that affected me very strongly in the late '60s by Mar- Mar- Michelle Bernanos called "The Other Side of the Mountain," the son of Jean oh yes, Bernanos. yeah, 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 yeah. And at, again, that has disappeared from our discussion. Novels like mm-hmm. well, uh, it's, it's happening less these days. Novels like that have disappeared from the discussion because they were never published in any way that would become visible to genre readers. E.H. Uh, e. Viziak was another writer, and David Lindsay, uh, who have kind of been uh, subsumed uh, in, in, in the last 20 or 30 years. But it seems to me there's a rich tradition of fantastic writing, which does verge on surrealism, but I don't think surrealism describes it quite right either. Right, right. And and um, it's funny you mentioned Birdbrain and the Michelle Bernanos, because I would have pointed it to them myself for, for different reasons. Um, one is that there's this kind of mulch in the back of my head now of all the weird stuff. And so, you know, sometimes you'll finish a novel and you'll, it, it's not until it's in publication that you'll understand certain things about it. And um, so one thing I understood about it is that there's a certain amount of, I don't know what you would call kind of existential struggle in the Bernanos that I think is definitely an influence on Annihilation. Um, and actually, Annihilation. I mean, um, uh, the Michelle Bernanos story is in um, is in the weird. Um, and then Birdbrain speaks to another thing with regard to Annihilation, which is she is speaking again about kind of a firsthand experience of the wilderness. I mean, that's based in part on some of the hiking that she has done. And uh-huh. um, and so that's why this is so weird for me in terms of influences. I mean, and the ones you pointed out are great. The one the ones that I begin to take issue with are like Lovecraft because because it just doesn't fit the the, the philosophy and it, it's not really he's not really somebody that I, I know this sounds weird I haven't I've not been able to read him widely because I I, I I stop in his prose for some reason there's something on the level of image 
<laughs> that doesn't quite work for me or doesn't quite click. Um, but but when I finished Annihilation, and I know everyone focuses on the science fiction aspects, to me, it was a highly personal novel in part about the landscape that I knew so well. And so there are elements that that people point to that they say, well, maybe it comes from this thing in literature or this thing in, in, in whatever. And they're actually just very personal details from, from my experience hiking out there. Uh, and some of the rhythms of, of walking and the rhythms of what happens when you hike. Um, but then also, <coughs> excuse me, um, and I think Bird Brain partakes of that as well. But that also happened to me with the Ambergris novels. Like, I would do a lot of research on, like, fun, fun, fungi, for example. Um, and then that would come out in the fiction. And then someone would say, well, that's definitely from this writer over here and this novel. And I'd be like, well, that's actually from a biological standpoint, something that I researched from the real world. And and so there is a little bit of a disconnect sometimes, I think, yeah. where, especially if you're writing fantastic or science, science fiction, people assume that it can't come from real life to some degree. I mean, certain things can't, like they have to have been, they must be an echo of some some other um, piece of fiction. Uh, but the two that you mentioned are absolutely uh, things that I myself would mention if someone asked, uh, is this an influence on on Annihilation? Um, and uh, and actually it was kind of interesting to see that there are a fair number of, of nature narratives in, in the fantastical um, because we focus so much, I guess, because New Weird did on on cities and urban settings. Oh um, well, yeah, that's true. So, but I think going all the way back, I mean, the the, the idea of a of a kind of magical actually, Nettie Okorafor does this quite a bit. Now that I think about it, she's taking her yeah. own experiences as an American as as an American Nigerian American visiting the jungle for the first time, and it's a transformative yeah. experience. Even yeah. though for a yeah. reader, not recognizing that it looks yeah. like science fiction right no absolutely and 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 uh, to give you an example from annihilation uh and i don't know if uh like uh, jonathan i don't know if this happens in australia for example but um where i live the dolphins will actually come in at high tide through the marsh flats uh in some of the uh, passageways into the freshwater lakes that are just farther in Mm -hmm. and so you will have this disconnect where you think you're in a dolphin free zone <laughs> so to speak and you'll see this line in the water and and your mind does this weird thing where where you you you, you interpret that line as being anything but a dolphin because there's no way there can be a dolphin here right so yeah. so you think that's that must be the line of an otter what is that and then when when you see the fin it kind of breaks your brain in a way <laughs> Um, and so if you don't, if you haven't hiked in this area, um, there's a certain number of readers for whom the narrative is even stranger than it would uh -huh. be otherwise. And, but it's something from the, from, from the real world. Um, this happened to me in Australia too, actually, the first time I went hiking there, mm -hmm. I saw a flash of brown. I, my brain said, my reptile brain said deer, out hopped a kangaroo, mm -hmm. and I must have been frozen for like five seconds, you know? <laughs> so... <laughs> It's a very surreal moment when you, when for the first time you turn around and you see a pod of kangaroos in some urban area or whatever else. Yes, yeah. it is. <laughs> because I go out hiking around here a little bit, and it's a very urbanized area. It's not like the area it sounds like you spend a lot of time in. Yeah. And still, even in a small area, you'll suddenly see things you don't expect. So I completely get that kind of uh, disconnect, which creates a very yeah. almost surreal kind of feeling for a brief period of time, a moment of... Yeah, disconnect. And so yeah, the fantastical is kind of created in that moment around you, even though it isn't, you know. And and it kind of 
tells us something about the real world, too. One of the things that happened to me when I was a kid, and I was reading lots of science fiction, but and I um, I was also reading a lot of Faulkner because Faulkner's description mm-hmm. of the Mississippi woods uh, yeah. is imminent. I mean, it's it, it it felt to me like it's in keeping with the kind of feelings I got from reading science fiction, even though there was nothing explicitly fantastic about it. Uh, and that must be the kind of uh, sense of place that you're talking about. Yeah, no, totally, and and it and it's evoked in. And and in a very ancient way in certain parts of the landscape, like there's a part where you go from pine forest to cypress swamp with very black, still water. And something about that stillness kind of uh, corrupts the rest of the landscape there. And so that's the only part where you feel like you're being watched, even though you're not being watched. And it's the part that I don't like hiking by myself, even though it's a totally irrational fear. Mm-hmm. Um but but so there are moments like that in the landscape, especially if you're pretty far out and by yourself, where you know you you sense something else, and it's not it's not the numinous, but it's it's getting close to that. <laughs> Do you think that the writer you were 25 years ago when you started with a book of frog would be surprised <laughs> would be surprised at the books you've ended up writing in 2014? <laughs> um. <laughs> That's a good question. Um, Anne's actually laughing um, from elsewhere in the room. Um, uh, I don't know. I mean, there's actually bits and pieces of my entire career in the Book of Frog, uh, which which began as a as a series of writing exercises from my um, high school uh, uh, creative writing teacher, uh, where she wanted us to do different exercises, and I decided to put frogs in each of them as kind of the, the, the motif, just to <laughs> Just to kind of have some linkage, um, uh, but that's a that's a good question. Um, uh, I was a very um, arrogant and <laughs> single-minded art with a capital A kind of eighteen-year-old. Uh, so, <laughs> so I don't know exactly what he would think. He might actually think I'm a sellout. I have no idea. <laughs> well, there's a sense among uh, among the the. the um... The ambiguous readers. Uh, I mean, I was thinking. You mentioned uh, the, the experience that uh, Farrar, Shrush, and Jew is having with these books, which is obviously a very good experience for them. Yeah. But from from the readership you associate with that publisher, there are going to be a number of people reading uh, Annihilation and and Authority, which is all we can have so far, uh, mm-hmm. and thinking this is the weirdest thing I've ever read. And there are going to be ambiguous readers who are going to say this is the least weird thing that I've ever read by Jeff. Yes, and that's that, that, kind of neat, actually. Well, it's um, I think the, uh, I think oddly enough, uh, it coming out from a mainstream publisher and them focusing on what they do best, which is to say, getting the word out in that arena, and then secondarily getting it out in a genre, in, into the genre world, has actually helped the sales to some degree too, um, because there are still people who would never pick up a uh, science fiction book who would pick up a book about a strange expedition into a pristine but but weird wilderness, if that makes any right. sense. Yeah. It, and it's totally just a categorization thing, the, the kind of stupid categorization things you see all the time where people edit out or make invisible things that they might actually enjoy uh, and make other things visible based on fairly ridiculous criteria. But 
Um, so, so if it was a different kind of a science fiction book, I, it it might have more of a more of an issue with with mainstream readers. But I am finding a certain number of them who are getting into it because of this idea of an expedition, and that somehow uh-huh. normalizes it for them. And and then you're right, there are there are those. <laughs> there was one genre reader who loved the Ambergris books who was like, this is just the Abergus books, but with less fungi <laughs> and was really upset about it. <laughs> and of course, on some level, I almost kind of half regret that there's this kind of uh, triggering mechanism in part of the book that is indicated as being spore related. Um, and it's in part because that seemed like the best analogy um, that the biologist can make to whatever it is that's yeah. going on, just because it then creates this connection with the other books. And, and in actual fact, especially in Authority and in the third book, there's very little fungus or spores at all. So, so I don't know. Um, there, there, I, don't, I, I don't know if that person who found less fungus is going to find that better or worse. I, I don't know. Um, but, but the the focus is not really on on that that aspect of it. No, it's not. And in, in the first, uh, well, we, we, sh- we should talk about the differences between the first and the second volume because there's some interesting yeah. changes. Uh, we're completely within this expedition. We're completely within these unnamed characters. Um, and we want answers. And then there are some answers in authority, but in authority, we don't, we're not allowed back in there at all. We're looking at a bureaucracy and an investigation and uh, some espionage kinds of things going on. So in some ways, it's a very different kind of novel that only exists because it can interrogate the first novel. Right. Um, and, and in fact, I, I've had some friends who have read Authority and then read Annihilation, and the interesting thing is that they're both kind of closed vessels. You can read Authority, uh-huh. and it doesn't really ruin Annihilation for you. just puts a different slant on it. And that does accomplish one thing I wanted, which was even though some people will say that book two, like any book two, is a conduit or a tunnel, (laughs) um, I did want it to be a complete character arc, and I did want it to be its own separate thing. Um, And I also didn't want this to be a trilogy which goes chronologically, like just literally you pick up where you left off. Right. Yeah. And so Authority is very much more of a kind of Kafka-esque uh, workplace novel, and I really do commit to that because that's the reality of it. Um, and, you know, I, I've noticed in the reviews and in the Amazon reviews and things like that that it's had this effect of certain people who didn't really like the unknowns and the wilderness of Annihilation, but they still wanted to find out what happened next, really liking Authority better because it somehow hits their sweet spots better. And then certain people who loved Annihilation not liking authority as much. Mm. And then my hope is just simply that after people read Acceptance and they realize how Acceptance changes your perception of both the first and the second novel, that they'll understand why the second novel is the way it is. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I wrote it the way that I felt it needed to be written and, and the way that I felt... I, I wanted to give readers not what they expected, but what they needed. Um, and some of them will not know they needed it until the third book, but <laughs> um, but that, that's just the way it is. If you're going to write three totally different kind of novels um, in, in the series, it's just going to going to be that way. I think it sounds like fun. I think, well, speaking of the non-genre readers, because you are getting, you are hitting the bestseller list with this. Am I, am I right? Yeah, just the authority just poked its its head up as a wary rabbit, uh, <laughs> rabbit, uh, <laughs> 
rabbit-based uh, book should on uh, on the New York Times list this week, um, which is, is, is quite a thing for me. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, well, the thing is um, that among uh, you're getting Amazon reviews, which nobody should ever read of their own books, of right. course. Uh, right. I read it to inoculate said, myself. <laughs> I know. But I'm, I'm thinking if I showed this to my, um, my, my, my nieces and nephews, for example, first thing they come up with is, well, this looks a lot like Lost might have looked if they'd actually thought it through. <laughs> yeah, and I think um, one of their initial marketing things was Margaret Atwood meets J.J. Um, Abrams, which... <laughs> To me, yeah, would be I, oh, actually if it actually happened, it would be something out of the fly. But, um, but, yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah, no, no, I, 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 I get, I get that. I mean, there are those elements, and, and, and what's really hilarious, I guess, is that there's an island that features prominently <laughs> in the third book, um, but, but no polar bear. Um, huh? But yeah, no. um, and but yeah, I, I can definitely see that, and of course, that again makes it an easier entry point. Exactly. Because, I think, you know, so. I, I suspect that there's a, a readership or a viewership out there that has been for years wanting to see some story like that, that in the end actually made some kind of sense, yeah. which the series didn't. Well, let, let's hope it does. I, I have been thinking just because okay. no matter no, 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 no matter how you feel like you have satisfied the, what what you think, you know, the novel should be in combination with with um, thinking of the reader, um, you know, you're still nervous about it. <laughs> so, you well, know, yeah. I, I've been, I've been joking to Anne about, well, maybe I should just take a internet vacation from September 1st <laughs> until the end of the year <laughs> and just let it play out. However it plays out. <laughs> um, but I, well, I do think um, there'll be enough answers. What I, what I've done and, and, and it's, it's, it's sensible. <laughs> But it also uh -huh. creates, I think, more drama is I don't think there's any one character who ever finds out the truth. But because there's uh, more than one character point of view in the third book, the reader finds out, if that makes any sense. And, sure. and that relieves the burden of some character suddenly saying, I suddenly understand everything. <laughs> right? And it also was, creates the drama of certain characters making decisions based on knowledge that you know is faulty as the reader. <laughs> so... So there's there's not going to be a, a, a an elderly scientist explaining to his beautiful young daughter uh, what's going to happen. <laughs> no, there won't be, and there won't be a polar bear with a snow globe on the island saying, "Hey guys, what? I'm glad I'm glad you've I'm glad I'm glad you've gathered here to." <laughs> so, right. Exactly. We're not going to suddenly get a fourth volume afterward coming out just so that we oh, can God, sort of. No. God, no, if that happens, people need to hunt me down. <laughs> no, no, no. So um, do, you, do you feel like yeah. you're, you're done with the Southern Reach? I think I am. There's the possibility of uh, I'm, I'm working on a, a, a short story that may or may not coalesce right now that that FSG might put out uh, between uh, before before um, acceptance comes out. But but yeah, I think I'm really done with it, and it's actually it's actually fairly. I don't know. It's not traumatic, but it, it's. I've kind of lived with these characters, and especially as you'll see in the, in the third book, um, when some of your expectations change a bit about who these people are, um, I've lived with them in, uh, now so intensely that that leaving them behind after such a short time, you know, with an ambiguous, I had twenty years, yeah. um, 
it's been a little bit there's been a little bit of a, a grieving process and it's been even weird with the readings like I, I read part of a scene involving the psychologist from Annihilation when I was in New York and I had just finished uh, some revisions on acceptance and and I was seeing the scene from a totally different perspective it was very hard to read because I had to somehow edit out of my voice what I knew about that scene from the third book um, yeah. oh. And uh, yeah, so it's it's been it's it's certainly been surreal and fascinating and 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 horrifying at times. <laughs> <laughs> Has it yeah. been educational? <laughs> Which sounds like a weird um, question, but you know, it, it's been such an intense experience, uh, yeah. and you're probably so close to it still that it's difficult to work out what you may or may not take away from it. Yeah. But I wonder if yeah, if, if it's the sort of thing you feel. It changes how you write and how you want to write and what you're doing, what kind of things you want to do in the future. It it does actually. I mean, there's uh, there's things, especially I learned from authority, because uh, I experimented kind of below the surface in authority with withholding information until the point where it was most um, most tense. Like for example, the main character has to report to a superior who's just a voice <laughs> he doesn't know who it is there's actually a fair amount of dark dark humor in authority but um and so kind of the joke of authority is he'll walk down a corridor and he'll never like reach the place he's getting and you'll get what happened at the end of that corridor later when he's reporting uh and so i learned uh, certain ways to to transmit information or 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 scenes out of chronological order, but in a way that still makes kind of sequential order for the reader. And I actually kind of learned this from Light by M. John Harrison, where <coughs> he does a rather amazing job of only giving you the information you need when you need it. So there are these things that he alludes to that don't make any sense initially, but because of the context, you don't actually need to know, and it doesn't bother you. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of like um, transform that and, and translate it, uh, that in a different way. There's all kinds of things I've learned from that that will definitely affect uh, Born, uh, which is the next novel. It's definitely going to make the next novel more stripped down because this is when I started uh, between Ambergris and the Southern Reach, and I think my writing style has completely changed. Mm. Uh, and that's actually going to be to the benefit of, of this story uh, very much so, I think. We should also congratulate you on Wonder Book, which uh, oh. is getting a lot of deserved attention and is... It's a curiosity. It's the, it's the most certainly the most gorgeous writing manual ever produced. I suppose it's it's okay, an art book and a writing manual at once. You. Yeah, the um, a, my kind well, of uh, influence on that was actually Alistair Gray, in an odd way. Uh-huh, um, uh-huh. You know, because he does so much illustrated stuff, and he does stuff that manages to be eccentric, but still to some extent accessible. And so I thought when I started out on Wonderbook, it's like, well, let's. This has to be functional first, right? So like, if you really read the text, it's actually very practical information. But and, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of different voices involved because of all the um, sidebar articles by people like Neil Gaiman. So you're not just getting my perspective on things. But there is an eccentric aspect to it, especially in the this real illustration. But what I find that's been really interesting that I did not expect is that people are treating it as more than just a writing guide. They're kind of treating it as like an ambassador of the genre, not to be pretentious about it, but they're, they're, they're kind of like saying this actually holds within it because of the different viewpoints, a pretty decent view of, 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 of 
contemporary genre in, in its many different facets. And, and that's very satisfying, the, the fact that people seem to feel good <laughs> reading <laughs> it. I mean, I, I know that sounds weird, but it's just like, it, it just, it's just um, something about it, something worked. And I, and I don't even know if it was necessarily intentional, but and maybe it's because all the different voices are in there, but but it it um it it does does what I wanted to do, but it also does these these other things too, and it's just been it's just been great to get the the feedback. Uh, it's it's also being taught in a lot of colleges and and mm-hmm. places you wouldn't expect, like Brown, sure. and uh, I think a lot of uh, professors who who teach uh, creative writing from a mainstream lit point of view, but have students that are highly visual and are highly informed by pop culture, are finding it useful to them. Are you hearing from people who are not aspiring writers at all? Because I think one of the it, it does serve as a mini anthology of of essays about craft, of ideas about craft. Yeah. Of um, uh, oh, 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 I can't remember all the little sidebar kinds of things, but yeah, it seems to me to be a lot. It would be very fascinating to just general readers of the genre. Yeah, I am. I'm getting people who treat it as like a general creativity guide too. I've actually had. Because of some of the diagrams, I've also had musicians email me and say, hey, this really fits how I see certain parts of my process in, in doing lyrics and music. Mm-hmm. And um, and in fact, part of the expansion of the Wonder Book Now site is going to be dealing with having some of those people write short essays about the, that kind of confluence or cross-pollination, which, which then brings in different types of creativity and different points of view. But yeah, some people are dealing with it as a general creative, uh, creativity guide and... Um, some general readers are just are just like you know, hey, I want to know Neil Gaiman or Nettie Okorafor's point of view on something, and and they're buying it for that and thinking of it as an art mm-hmm. book. So I, I've been really happy about that, especially and there's been point- so much. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, but there's just been so much divisiveness in genre over so many different issues that it just kind of makes me happy that so far at least this is something that that kind of kind of like. I don't know, just makes, again, makes people kind of come together over it, so. I'm curious, you've spent a lot of time, or it seems to me from a distance at least, a lot of time uh, involved in teaching writing, teaching about the fantastic, uh, you know, you've taught at Clary and all kinds of other workshops. How much of the teaching process informs you more about what you're doing yourself? Because it always seems to me that when I'm trying to explain something, I learn more about what I'm doing in some ways than by doing it, if you know what I mean. Oh, sure. I mean, my point of view on teaching is that the first thing you're trying to do is you're trying to understand what the the student or writer is trying to do, whether they do it poorly or not. You're trying to inhabit their point of view on it and, and understand it so then you can point out places where they might have done something better or, or something's not working. And anytime you do that, you learn something because you're trying to basically inhabit somebody else's point of view. And then just in the way that, that especially on one-on-one sessions that other writers, students, or whoever talk about their work, it's often in a different way that you, than you talk about your work. And I think one, one thing that's really great about Anime being a team is, you know, we usually do teach together. And so we'll have these one-on-one sessions where there is an act of translation. Like there'll be somebody that I'm just not getting for whatever reason. And sometimes it's even the way they're talking about writing. And Anne will be like, oh, well, what he's saying is blah, 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 blah. And it's like, oh, okay, now I understand, and vice versa. And so there definitely is, there are different languages in which you speak about writing and, and, and just learning to see somebody's different point of view and, and the different, so quote-unquote, language that they that they think about certain things in 
is very useful. So I always learn from students. Um, the Shared Worlds uh, Teen Writing Camp, a sci-fi fantasy writing camp that I that I help run, is also extremely um, useful in that way. Although that's not the, the the main point of it, obviously. But but you always learn something, especially from very very young beginning writers who who haven't got any received ideas about writing at all. Mm. They sometimes they're writing their first story. In fact, that was the most mind blowing thing to me. Is the second year we had two students who had never written a story before, and we had just kind of assumed anyone who came to a writing workshop must have written a story before. Yeah. But when you have somebody <laughs> who's like 13 or 14 year old, years old handing you a story and saying, "This is the first thing I've ever written," <laughs> <laughs> you, you know what I'm saying? It's like, <laughs> well, first of all, you take great care. <laughs> well, you yes. do a lot of damage. What? You, it sounds like you. I would, I would be terrified to just just do some it is, damage. It is, it is terrifying. It's very rewarding, but 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 you definitely you're very you're very careful. And of course, it's not at all like a clarion workshop. You 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 don't do that kind of workshop for for 13 to 17 year olds. It, it would be totally useless and horrible for them and everything else. <laughs> um, so you do something that's more of a uh, takes a, a step back a little bit where they get a, a list of kind of strengths and weaknesses and they get a one-on-one session with with uh, with our guest writers and whatnot. Um, but not anything that you know as intense as a clarion, which is, is just completely useless um, at, at that that grade level. But why do you like to work at that grade level then? Um, you know, I didn't know I was going to. Um, uh. And then uh, when you when you see the, the thing of it is, is when you when you teach this this age level, you're potentially being of use to them in their lives, not just their writing. Um, and so we have uh. kids who come back the third or fourth year who are huge introverts who in part through shared worlds, in part obviously through many different other things, have an assurance um, that you wouldn't believe. And and the, and the thing about it too is that a lot of these kids who come to something like shared worlds are loners to begin with. And there are kids who are somewhat ostracized at their own schools. And so for the first mm-hmm. time, they feel comfortable working in teams because the first, the first week they actually build worlds in teams of 10. Mm-hmm. And then they write stories set in those worlds the second week. And, and this gives them enough distance you know, so it's not like they're very, very, very personal thing, but also a stake in it to be able to write without being blocked. Um, but but they do all kinds of things that in their actual, you know, many of them in their in their schools and their actual lives that they would never think of doing. They would never think of working with a ten of a group of ten people to to work something out. They never think about presenting something and doing public speaking and all that. But because it's something that they're really invested in, they forget <laughs> that they're doing this thing. And so that's really satisfying. We have kids who are. Um, high-functioning Asperger's who so relax into the structure of the camp that by the second week, they're just, they're just having so much fun, you know, and and so you, it's, um, I don't know, it's, it's, um, it's, it's very, it's it's very rewarding. Are these kids readers? Do they come in having read certain things, have expectations? (laughs) They are enormous readers. In fact, the thing that killed me the the first or second year was we'll take them to a bookstore for a reading with like Holly Black or wherever, and mm-hmm. um, and by the time they've left that bookstore, every single section is stripped. Like <laughs> they're not just pulling from YA, they're not just pulling from genre. These these are the kids who read everything, who read history and everything else. They, I mean, it's a small sample, but these are the kids who they most of them write longhand, uh, don't particularly care for computers. They buy physical mm. books. They don't have e-readers. 
Um, and I don't know, I don't know what kind of a sample this is. You know what I'm saying? I don't know how representative it is of anything. Um, but it, it does my heart good to see this, you know, um, mm. even if it is a skewed sample. Is Wonder Book the, the summation of your experience through writing uh, writers' workshops? Is that to, to some degree what it came from? Um, that's a good question. Um, I think it would be both the summation and the pushback against, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. uh, because a lot of times in workshops or workshop situations, you see a lot of, um, I guess, workshop jargon mm. uh, pushed around, um, you know, terms like white room to describe lack of description, things that, that wind up making generalizations that, that aren't actually that useful to the person being critiqued. And so uh, mm -hmm. Wonderbook has none of that jargon in it whatsoever on purpose. Um, uh, and it pushes back against the idea of there being one one answer because... I mean, I have to be honest, you know, I, I, I've had, as a, as a student, I've had both good and bad workshop experiences, and the worst ones have always been where the teacher comes in and they're so sure that their approach and their anecdotal evidence is the one true way to do it. Yeah. And then they try to impose that on every student rather than trying to see what the student's doing and then form fit to that. Yeah. Um, in the most ridiculous situation, I remember, <laughs> again, I won't name names, but uh, but I had a situation where I was sitting in this leather couch that was already kind of enveloping me, and the instructor was standing over me, and he was saying, I'm at this level, and he was holding his hand really high, and he says, at this level, you have a Porsche, and you're at this level, <laughs> and he was holding his hand really low down, oh like, and then slowly pulling it up and saying, and eventually, you too will have that Porsche, whereas at, at, at that point, I was trying to say to him... Um, I just want to know what's wrong with my manuscript. <laughs> and, and so, and so I, I think of that example when I was doing Wonder Book and when, when I teach to, to try to take the ego out of the equation. Uh, and, and so Wonder Book is a summation in some ways. It's also um, trying to push back against certain, certain types of things like that. Fair enough. There's one other thing I'm kind of curious about and we won't get into detail, but it was touched on in the passing comment you made earlier. Uh, yeah. When we talk about genre, there's the artistic entity of genre, mm. as diverse and strange as it is, and there's also the socio-political ent you know, yeah. entity that it is. Do you feel your relationship to that has changed over time and your interest in it? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, but because it's, it's because the nature of the Internet and social media has changed, I used to just wade in. And and just basically, and it's also a function of age, I think, too. But, you know, when I was younger, I used to just wade into all these arguments and all these discussions. And, uh, you know, over time, I just feel like the Internet is not the most nuanced place in the universe. <laughs> and, uh, and, and also, to be absolutely honest, um, Anne and, and me have both tried to have a philosophy of we do not want to become the object of attention if that makes any sense mm -hmm. and there's ways you can talk about an issue and call attention to yourself and the ways where you can just get the job done and so we would rather have our projects exemplify what we believe than be spouting what we believe all over the place <laughs> um, also the fact of the matter is that in some of this factionalism you know we know all these writers outside of this and mm -hmm. and and some of them have very different personas online than offline mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. and I'm sure you know Jonathan is an anthologist too. It, it's just you 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 don't want to take sides because the ephemeral moment of whatever it is 
is not quite as important as the writing. <laughs> sure. I mean, I mean, certainly, and, yeah. Yeah. No, sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say, my own experience of it is that, and it really, it, it, I think, is in sync with part of what you're saying, is it's never a nuanced discussion, and yeah. it's never the discussion you would have face-to-face. Right. Uh, and it never really seems to achieve anything. The, 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 particularly, the, I, mean, I guess when I say this, I'm talking about the, the online discussion never seems to actually get to anywhere. And it just detracts, distracts from the writing, the work, and what it has to say, which is far more interesting generally than what's being said in those brief online conversations. Yes, and, and, and I'm much more interested in, at a convention or whatever else, sitting down with something, someone and getting to, to know that mm. person kind of in their totality. Mm. Um, and, and to have interesting, more nuanced discussions and, and and also I think it's a function of of age too. It's like I, I have a sense now, especially after these books, of 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 time being finite, <laughs> and, and and I want to create as much as possible before I kick the bucket. You know, so so you're right. It's, it it feels like it's a waste of time. And then when I see Wonder Book go out in the world and 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 the reaction to it, it's like, well, you know, that's that's. That is a much more compelling argument than anything I could say in the moment. Yeah. Uh, potentially. Yeah. So. Although, just to speak on behalf of some younger people, because I'm I'm older than anybody in this in this <laughs> room, uh, is that I, I see some of these people who don't feel they're not going to sit down at conventions and have discussions with writers. They don't feel they have a voice anywhere, uh, and to some extent, what they say on these online forums may be impulsive and immature. But it's a voice that 50 years ago would have been writing a letter to a fanzine and waiting weeks to get something back in the mail. Uh, so it, it may be annoying in some ways, and it may be counterproductive in some ways, but I think it does give some people a sense that they're involved in a discussion about the field um, that they otherwise wouldn't be. No, no, let me be quite clear. I think a lot of these conversations are actually really useful. Mm. I just don't feel that my personal take on things is really that useful to add to it if that makes any sense mm. oh yeah um, especially if i yeah so i mean i totally get what you're saying and, and uh, one reason we have an international community now um really is because of the internet because yeah. of the fact that all these voices from all over the world can be heard so so i totally totally agree with you on that i just myself feel like nobody really needs to hear that what, what what's better for me <laughs> is to actually just do stuff so yeah I well, with with annihilation authority and acceptance now complete, and with acceptance sort of coming out in the next couple of months, yeah. uh, where to now for Jeff? <laughs> well, um, two <laughs> two novels I'm working on. Born, which is I keep describing as kind of like if you had Godzilla and Mothra fighting in the background while a Chekhov play was going on in the round in the foreground. <laughs> um, so we'll see how that works out. Hopefully that's a chemical, not a physical reaction. Um, and then I also have a little something called The Book Murderer, which is something I'd always planned would be like the last thing I ever wrote before I died, um, which is basically a kind of a satirical take on book culture from uh, various different angles. Uh, from the point of view of this guy who's a little bit deranged and is trying, even though he knows that he can't do it, to destroy every book in the world. Uh, and... Um, yeah, so the, the <laughs> two very different projects. <laughs> um, I'm not sure which one will be finished first, but those are the two that I'm working on right now. 
and I guess we also congratulate you before we wind up because we're getting towards the end of our hour is congratulations on your Hugo Award nomination for this year. Oh, thanks. Thanks. I was I was really pleased about that in part because Jeremy Zerfoss, um, the illustrator, did so much work on, on that book. Uh, so to see him kind of recognized for that is, is great. So thank you. And I trust we will see you in London uh, to celebrate. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So Look forward to it. Great. Anything else, Gary? I think, well, there's a lot more, but <laughs> we have to we have to let Jeff go before he gets bored with us. Well, um, I mean, yeah, no, there's we could go back. We, we could go back all the way to uh, all the um, ambiguous novels and start over again and do a separate separate podcast. Maybe we'll do that later. Let's well, see. Let's, I was going to say to you, what I'd love to do maybe a little bit later, and we don't normally do this during the podcast, is we'd love to have you and Anne back together to talk about editing oh, and the kind yeah. of work you do, do as, a, as a team. Because I've got yeah, an yeah. admiration. Anne can tell all the horrible stories about working with me. So. <laughs> only fair. Oh, yeah, she's actually saying some things right now. <laughs> anyway. We didn't spend enough time on is, is, uh, is, is your and Anne's work in publishing, which has brought a lot of important work to the attention of American readers. Well, thank you. Uh, including, uh, including one we gave the Crawford Award to, was it year before last now? When, when you, oh, yeah, you yeah. Came down yeah. That, such a great writer. Yeah. I was so glad she to is, see that. She is brilliant. Well, with that, congratulations on the Southern Reach Trilogy, Jeff. I think it's a remarkable work. Thank you for making the time today. We really, really appreciate it. And we look forward Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. So. And look forward to both seeing, uh, seeing you in London and talking to you again soon. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. And until, uh, Gary, until next week when we will talk again, as always. All right. As always.